0: You are listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. We're talking today about the recent published Courage trial. This is a landmark trial designed to assess the role of percutaneous coronary intervention in the treatment of stabilized coronary artery disease patients and to assess the potential benefit of combined revascularization and aggressive medical therapy in these patients. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Nissen, Chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic and President of the American College of Cardiology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nissen. Thank you. Dr. Nissen, in the, in the COURAGE trial, was there any sort of quantifiable measurements done to see if the patients with the stents or the angioplasty actually felt better?
1: Uh, they did quality of life assessment. Uh, however, the quality of life assessment was not part of the primary manuscript. The uh, principles from the COURAGE trial did present those results at the late-breaking trial session, but they haven't yet been published. And so it's a little bit difficult to sort it out. But let me try to summarize from the what I heard as opposed to what's actually been published. Uh, what I heard in the presentation is an explanation that They used quite sophisticated quality of life measures, and they could show, because of the reduction in angina, that there was a slightly higher quality of life for those patients that were randomized to stenting. However, there was also a very substantially higher cost, and they presented an analysis which really asked what I think is a pivotal question, is what does it cost? To add an additional quality adjusted life year. In other words, you know, this is the measure that people who do this for a living use to assess the cost effectiveness of therapies. And what they suggested is that there, the, the cost to that small increase in quality of life was very high. On the order of a couple hundred thousand dollars for, for each quality adjusted life year. That's generally in a range that's higher than most people would consider the range of a cost effective therapy. And so they argued that a strategy of initially doing angioplasty could not be justified on the basis of improved quality of life, that it wasn't a cost effective strategy. Again, there are others that will argue about that. And I, I think to really discuss this carefully, we have to see their publication.
0: You know, we're talking about quality of life benefits. What about financial benefits? Have you or others looked at if we removed, you know, any of the financial benefits we get from stenting patients from the equation? If you look at academic institutions where docs might be on salary, are they doing less stenting?
1: To me, that sort of is a is a secondary question. You know, I got asked that here by the, some of the local media here in Cleveland, Ohio, and what I said is that physicians want to do the right thing for their patients. If it means that we're going to do fewer stents and generate less revenue, so be it. You know, I think, you know, even the most passionate interventional cardiologists recognize that, you know, we all work in a system where healthcare is very, very expensive and that the things we do for patients and to patients should be based upon what's reasonable and cost-effective. And, you know, I think, that a strategy that tends to lean toward medical therapy first is effective and it's also cost effective. And remembering that we're not saying that some of those patients aren't eventually going to come to intervention and should come to intervention. In in, in general, you want to take the path that offers the best quality at the least cost.
0: So what do you do when it's someone that is a loved one of yours that, let's say, has a 78% 78% blockage with good blood flow, and you know what you know now about everything in terms of stenting and the treatment of this disease. Do you, do you put a stent in that person?
1: Here's what I would say to them is, first of all, how much chest pain do you have? To what extent is it interfering with your lifestyle? And, you know, if the person, particularly if they're older and a little bit less active, and they're not having a lot of angina, I'm very comfortable with, you know, getting that individual family member of mine on a a good statin, maybe even adding niacin to raise HDL if they have a low HDL, using antiplatelet agents like aspirin and clopidogrel when indicated and seeing how they do. And I would be obviously delighted. And if in a month or two your patient comes back to talk to you and says, look, I'm not having angina anymore, I feel good, and you've avoided doing a procedure that the patient didn't need. So I don't have any trouble doing this. Or members of my family. Let me tell you though why these findings were so important right now. There's a technique that's getting a lot of attention now CT angiography. And we're getting patients referred to us that are going in and having a screening CT angiogram. These are people who don't have symptoms, but they have a stenosis that's detected by a non invasive angiogram. And those patients are being referred, or at least they were, before courage for a coronary intervention. I think we now see why that's a very unwise thing to do. And I I felt very uncomfortable. In fact, I have had more than a handful of, of conversations with patients where I said, look, I don't think you should have had the CT angiogram in the first place. And the fact that they found the blockage, you know, you got a normal stress test, we shouldn't fix it. We should give you medicines and treat the underlying disease. And, boy, what a wake-up call this is, that we ought not be going out and doing angiograms as a screening procedure.
0: You're listening to Reach XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm with Dr. Stephen Nissen, chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. We're talking about the use of screening CT angiograms. So you are against the use of screening CAT scans in asymptomatic patients.
1: And I think our guidelines are very clear about that as well. I mean, we obviously want to resist people with minimum symptoms, but we really have to be sure we're not doing stents in people with no symptoms because now we're at a place where really all you face in that situation is the risks of the procedure without even the benefits on reducing angina since there's no angina at all. And so now that we know that there is no morbidity mortality advantage, doing it in asymptomatic individuals becomes clearly the wrong
0: thing to do. So you would definitely need a lot of courage if you were that cardiologist putting a stent in someone that is asymptomatic and uh, just has a stenosis seen routinely.
1: I just don't think it's a sensible approach, and I think we have to get things back in balance. You know it's interesting how things evolve with technologies. Uh, when stenting came along, it was a huge improvement over balloon angioplasty, and we then developed drug-eluting stents, and restenosis rates went down. And the rates at which we were doing these procedures accelerated at an enormous pace, even to the extent that you know by, that uh, thoracic surgical programs are having trouble filling their residency slots. And I think we went too far. I think that people assumed benefits from fixing the stenosis. You know, it seems so intuitive that if you fix the stenosis that you must be making the patient better. But courage does in fact wake us up to the fact that the benefits are modest. Not zero, but modest. And that those modest benefits come at a relatively high cost. And they allow us now to have a more thoughtful approach. What will happen? I think there'll be less growth in stending and maybe some contraction. There may be a bit of a resurgence in bypass surgery for multi vessel disease, and I think that medical therapy for many patients will ultimately end up being very effective and and obviate the need for any procedure, be it a stent or a bypass operation
0: so you're you sound optimistic that the oculostenotic reflex will lose some of its earlier passion.
1: I am because I feel that that in our profession in cardiovascular medicine that the people that I talk to and I work with, they really do want to do the right thing. I mean, there really is, we we are very fortunate that we have a profession where the vast majority of the people working in cardiovascular medicine are patient advocates. And I think if you're an advocate for your patients, you don't want to put them through a procedure that isn't absolutely necessary. And so I think this will get factored in to greater or lesser extent around the country, And you will see some shifting in practice
0: patterns. I'd like to change course a little bit and ask you a little bit about uh, intravascular ultrasound. I know that you are passionate about that. And I'm wondering if you have one of these patients with asymptomatic disease who comes in with a 50 60% blockage, and you were to do IVIS on them and perhaps some virtual histology, might you actually say, well, here is a plaque that actually would deserve a stent based on its lipid composition?
1: unproven strategy, and it's one that I have serious doubts about whether it will work. And this is now a bit arcane, but the reality is that plaques change over time. And I am concerned that the vulnerable plaque hypothesis is not built on a solid foundation, that in fact what happens is that there are lots of plaques in the coronary that some activate at different times and that, that any plaque can transition from stable to vulnerable given the right inflammatory stimulus. And so my concern is that all you would do if you did a technique that found vulnerable plaques is find out at this particular snapshot in time which of the plaques were right, but that six months from now a plaque you didn't think was vulnerable would become vulnerable. And so I have serious doubts whether any of the imaging techniques now being developed to identify vulnerable plaques are actually going to improve patient outcomes. I think it's all
0: vulnerable. So along those lines, I was wondering if you could translate this quote for me. I'm not sure if you said it or someone else did, but it's unstable plaques that lead to MI are not necessarily severely stenotic, and severely stenotic plaques are not necessarily unstable.
1: Well, in fact, I have uh, said that many times. Uh, We know from the work of Dr. Bill Little and others going back now uh, 15 or 20 years that most myocardial infarctions are not caused by high-grade stenoses that would qualify for a coronary intervention. Most MIs are produced when minor luminal irregularities in the coronary that contain plaques capable of rupturing, rupture, and cause a thrombus. So the truth is most MIs are not due to an occlusion at the most severe stenosis. Uh, In fact, most MIs are due to inclusion occlusion that occurs at at an area that is not very stenotic.
0: Dr. Nissen, is there anything else you'd like to add to our listeners today that I may not have asked?
1: I think this has been great. I hope it helps people to put courage into perspective, and I want to compliment the investigators for doing a trial. No trial is perfect, but I think they really did a very good trial, it's very informative, and we owe them a debt of gratitude for helping us to understand this disease better.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today, Dr. Nissen, and talking about the Courage trial and perhaps that the pendulum will swing a little bit back towards doing a few less unnecessary interventions. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.